Welcome to the History of Networking, where we drag all of the skeletons out of the wiring closet and ponder the ghosts of protocols past. Hello, Donald. How's it going? How are you tonight? Good. I see a part of a guitar behind you. And tonight we have with us Alistair Woodman, who is sitting in front of the Bay Bridge, apparently. Exactly. And we have Phil Remaker, who's, um, this is his first time on the History of Networking. Well, most of the time we have first-timers on the History of Networking, who is sitting in front of a door. I don't know what's behind the door, so we'll just ignore that. And then, and then we have Joe Pinto, who is sitting in front of some blinds, which is cool. I say all this because nobody can see this because, you know, we're on a podcast, so we don't release the video. So, all right, tonight we are talking about the history of the Cisco TAC, which should be very entertaining, which is why we have three people on, which is Alistair Fell and Joe Pinto. Um, I don't even know where to start. Where do we start? I'll start. I'll okay. jump in, Russ. Joe's going to start. Go when, I got, when I got hired at, at Cisco, there was, um, we were very uh, advanced. We had paper tickets. And the teams were land and WAND. And because I had an X-25 background, I was on the WAN team. And the paper tickets were put in a box. And you were supposed to take the, the, um, the one off the top. Uh, but what people would do is they would read the title and try to cherry pick. So every day there was a fight by the box about people cherry picking paper tickets. Yeah, we, we, we had cherry picking even the electronic system. Even when CARE came along, we had cherry picking. It was horrible. People would cherry pick the stuff they need. Yeah, it, 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 with that. so it was paper tickets. Uh, like I said, land, WAN, and that's how advanced we were. <laughs> so how did we go from land, WAN to having, what is it, 25 backline TOT now? <laughs> that's kind of a... <laughs> well, it's, it's interesting. We got there, there was like literally about 10 of us, right? Uh, by the time I left, we had 7,500 uh, people in TS at Cisco and thousands of, of subcontractors. Even though we did a lot of work in-house, we had a fair amount of work done by um, uh, outtaskers that were either nearshore or offshore. But we still employed 7,500 people around the world. Of course, we used a, a system. We had uh, God knows how many queues. But if I go back to those early days, I think one of the things that separated us was a couple of things, and I want Phil to comment as I throw them out. First of all, we were really into getting to root cause. It wasn't just about fixing, solving tickets, about getting to root cause either for the customer or on a pervasive issue. Phil, put in a little color on this. So I'll tell you, uh, one of the things that separated the TAC was they hired actual engineers to do the work. And, uh, and the, the customer engineers, it was in the name, customer engineer, were peers with the development engineers, and there was a mutual respect for each other. And that drove the, the sense of technical excellence. We published our bug information, which was a first in the industry. We, we had ticket numbers, and we made them public to tell, uh, to tell people, yes, we have this bug. And, uh, and the, the root, again, we had engineers, so root cause was important. They, the development engineers wanted to know about the root cause. They wanted to work closely with us, and they did. Uh, a number of the people that were in the, uh, the customer engineering group, the early customer engineering group, who tracked them, they've gone on to be CEOs of companies and to found companies, to be distinguished engineers. So the, there was some real, there was a real history of having serious engineering firepower in the support organization from the very beginning. By the way, Phil, I'd like to comment about that bug reporting. So we started posting the bugs online 
based upon a very informal discussion between myself and John Chambers. So we post the bugs, and the next day I get a call from a sales team going, we don't know what to do. The competitor just came in with our bug list. And I'm thinking, gee, I'm the person that said it would be a, uh, it was a good idea based upon what my folks had told me. So I was in the spur of the moment when you don't have a lot of sleep, you could come up with some pretty flippant answers. And I said, you know, find out if they have a bug list, because unless their software is perfect, where in the hell is their bug list? That turned out to be the perfect answer. That is a very good answer. It is. It is. It's an awesome answer. And so, you know, we could say Cisco TAC was the first to actually have open bug reports and open tickets and things like that. No, that's right. That's right. And by the way, in the old days, we used to publish bug reports in the bathrooms. So when people went to the bathroom, they could read up on the latest uh, bug reports as reading material. Um, I think that's okay for the radio, the podcast uh, listener. I think the other, the other point, Russ, is that we had engineers that their authority was equal to their responsibility, that we knew our people in the front lines had a massive responsibility, and we gave them the authority to do their job around shipping of parts, how much leeway to take. We did not, you know, we did not police our people. We trusted our people. Yeah, if somebody made a mistake about what they shipped out, we would correct it later on. But we really let our engineers be engineers and not become administrators or entitlement people. And so I think that was another key thing that their authority equaled with their responsibility. Uh, Phil, your uh, views on that uh, statement. Yeah, so one of, the, one of the other key things we had, uh, there's a, the, one, of the more famous, uh, one of the more famous stories of the Cisco lore was that uh, we needed a part that wasn't available. And we, uh, one of the tech engineers went over to the engineer, the um, manufacturing building, uh, scaled the cage, punched through the drop ceiling, dropped around the other side, took a piece of gear and left a note and shipped it to the customer. And, uh, and Joe received a particularly uh, 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 irate phone call at that point. And I'll let Joe talk about that call. Well, that was so priceless. I get a call from Cisco Security about we have one of your employees with a part that he stole from the lab. And I go, he stole? I'm not sure how Cisco can steal from Cisco, but I go, I go, uh, I, uh, I go, you took that part because of a customer's down, right? He goes, yeah. I go, will you just let him go? Because either you can let him go, or you can explain to the company why you held up us trying to save a customer who's down hard. But that call came in the middle of the night. I thought it was quite amusing. Yeah, and speaking, speaking, to, speaking to down hard, one of the other things, one of the other innovations early on uh, was the critical accounts program where the uh, where it, it got to a point where you know the network of course is absolutely pivotal to the way customers operate and it got to the point where we needed to track serious issues that were threatening customers networks reliability and ultimately uh, the company uh, the the company's viability whether or not they keep using the Cisco product so this is a key point because back then you know, a lot of different people got involved in escalations and very few people can handle escalations well. So we created a, a team, if you will, of critical account people that had no budget, but maximum authority to delegate to everybody, whether it was development, whether it was uh, support to do whatever they needed to do. And this way we can equalize the playing field for providing escalation and critical account support globally consistently, because sometimes what happens in companies executives think they're playing point 
Well, with all due respect, including myself now, executive is the last person you want to be managing an active critical account. Yes, they're needed on phone calls. Yes, they need to provide guidance and ownership and accountability to the customer. But the last thing you need is a bunch of different people from different backgrounds saying, oh, I got this, which means nobody has it. Yeah. So I'll just tell two stories here from my TAC days and another company, actually, that are related to what you've said so far. The first is when I started TAC in 96, um, one of the amazing things I found was when I opened my son, a terminal on my son's workstation is I had access to the source code. And furthermore, after working with Kathy Damaso for a little while, she actually gave me commit privileges. So I could actually pull a case, find the bug, fix it, commit it, have it code reviewed, commit it, have it go through CICD, or even push a special to the customer on the spot. That's kind of the level of trust that, Mac, that TAC engineers had in those days, um, way, way back. So that's that's kind of just gives you a sense of where things were. No, that's right. We really gave people a lot of leeway. And look, stuff happened, mistakes were made, but that's okay. You coach, you correct, you don't penalize 99.9% of the people that are doing a amazing job. And I think that's why we had such great people do the job probably longer than they thought. I had a lot of people said, look, Joe, I thought I was going to do this job for a year and then move on. And they were four years into the job and they would apologize about moving on. And Phil made a key point earlier. Back then, we had a number of people that ended up becoming either executives or founders uh, of other companies uh, that started off as literally uh, tech engineers in support at Cisco uh, during those uh, days in the 90s. I think this is a good point to bring up that the old story, the first time that I realized that Cisco had a tack because I joined as a product manager and, you know, I got to do my first product. And if you're doing your first product, you don't realize that a tack's necessary because you ain't shipped to a customer yet. So, um, but when I went out to start talking to customers about it, I, I landed up in the New York sales office for the first time. The guys there, they were very, you know, as you guys know, very blunt, right? And they looked at me and, you know, it was like, he's from corporate, right? And I'm like, yeah, I'm here to, you know, help you guys. And they looked at me and they said, okay, there are only three groups of people in this company that count. You're either selling it, you're making it, or you're fixing it. Which are you? And I went, I'm product management. And they went, okay, you're none of the above, right? So the respect that the company had and the sales organization had for the tech, I think, was phenomenal in the industry. Uh, and I think that that's a testament to how good you guys were. We were very fortunate where the field assumed good intent because we had worked hard to earn a reputation of the way we bird dog issues, solve issues 24 by seven. And a lot of times now, you know, quite frankly, you've got companies where the field thinks they can um, just take pot shots at support. And the field forgets ultimately they own the customer, right? The support people are getting up to do a good job, right? And that uh, we really felt like the company had our backs, whether it was John Chambers or the people in the field selling. And when something would go wrong, they would call and go, look, we need help, or we don't know what happened here, but they, but the, something went wrong. But it was a, definitely a mutually uh, a trust, if you will, which really enabled people to do their best work because when people assume good intent that no one has to watch out for you know, the politics of it, it really sets people free to do some of their best work. Uh, that New York uh, office, I, get, I do have a story. First time I went to New York City, 
the customer looked at the account team and they said, I don't want to, I'm from Brooklyn. And the, the customer goes, I didn't want a local guy. So I give him my business card and he goes, look, you could have printed this up down the street for free. So I take out, so he flips it on the floor. I take out my driver's license. He goes, okay, you could have paid a dollar to get this printed down the street. <laughs> that was my first customer meeting at Cisco flying out to New York City where my business card got tossed and then my driver's license got tossed. Fortunately, I was able to find the license so I can get back on the plane. Yeah, so I actually had this case where I was on Global Escalation and it was in it was on Wall Street and the SE called me from the account and he said, by the way, do you have a ponytail? And I said, no. <laughs> he said, well, you need to grow one really fast and wear some really raggedy shorts and a t-shirt. Otherwise, they won't believe you're an engineer. I remember that uh, they used to purposely tell people, don't go buy a suit. Don't d- just wear what you normally wear because then they'll believe you. And that, uh, and then, by the way, in the early days, you know, I became a bit of a banker because Cisco corporate centralized Amex would book the, the, the travel and pay for it out of a central Amex card. But then the engineers, none of them walked around with any money. So I would, con- there was times I'd send my wife to the bank to get cash. So I kept a notebook because expense reports took up to three months to get reimbursed. So it looked like I had a bookie sheet because I had names and numbers of what people owed me. And so Cisco used to talk about how we went to electronic um, reports for expense. And the uh, overnight, it went to like 100% people complied. Sure, because before that, it was written and it took three years to get paid back. Okay, three months. It started at paper tickets, right? With people cherry picking us. So, so kind of give us a little bit of progression from the paper tickets. I mean, how did, how did Cisco move to more of electronic? That may be uninteresting, actually, but. <laughs> well, it was. Uh, <laughs> well, Phil, you were there. We quickly realized we were going to have to go to a different system. And we went to Remedy. And before I hand it over to Phil, when Remedy got funded, they literally used Cisco as an example about the TAM for something that could automate a customer ticket. Remedy wasn't even a thing. You're, 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 um, this was, um, this was not Remedy. This is well, well before Remedy. This was a company called Progress. Oh, Progress. Oh my God. I totally blocked that out of my head. Progress was a, this was okay. This is 1992. This is pre-web browser. This was on your VT220 or your Xterm, an 80 by 24 screen. And it was done 80 by 24. You stretch the window bigger, don't care. It's still, it's fixed, 80 by 24. And you tab your way through, you know, you, no mouse clicking. You tab your way through the fields and type stuff in. Um, and, and that's how we took, and we, we, and we had the case state, some of which still exist today. There was, you know, customer CE pending, pending the customer engineer, uh, customer pending, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, I, I can't remember, you know, RMA pending, right? You say, so the, um, you would set the state of the case so people would know what's going on. And one of my favorite, uh, one of my favorite tech engineers, Marty Martinez, now he's a director at, at the, the TAC, still there after all these years. He says, as far as I'm concerned, there are two states for the case. There's CE pending and closed. 
That's it, right? So, so he, he said, he said could, somebody, could people say, oh, I'm waiting for something back from the customer. Well, have you called them? No, I'm waiting to hear from them. Call them. Call them every day. See if it matters. You know, oh, I'm waiting for the part. Did they get the part? Did you check to see if they got the part? And then you talk about bird dogging. We, we did a culture of bird dogging. It's like, you know, oh, well, it's, it's, not, it's not my responsibility. It's always your responsibility. And the people that excelled at the job, you know, stayed on top of that. Um, and speaking of the, the progress, um, the other thing Joe will remember is that um, we had a dial-up bulletin board system, again, before the web, where customers could dial up and go to Cisco Information Online, and they could look at knowledge base articles in glorious 80 by 24 monospace text in ye olde days. Um, and, and, uh, and I think Joe was one of the first... Uh, Joe was one of the first customer service, customer support organizations to fund a website because when we, we were looking at the board and the modems and we saw this web thing and Joe said, you know what, not that we can use this web thing to, you know, knock some tickets off our case. And, and he put together a small strike team that put together one of the first websites for customer support. Well, Phil, I got to tell you, I remember we, I, I pulled Steve Gordon out of his job and I said, look, either we've solved this issue. And when I say this issue, we had 50 tech engineers with 60 openings. When you have more openings than people, you either better figure out how to scale or within a short period of time, somebody else is going to be in your chair. So I'm talking to Steve Gordon and I go, Steve, either you and I figure this out or there's going to be two other people in this room soon to figure this out. I remember too, another <laughs> huge thing that came about was the internal web uh, web sites uh for a long time we just had uh, like you could go to a certain directory and you could build a website using manual html and you know you were cool and so most of the documentation that was out there that was really interesting inside the tech was run by team websites that were or personal websites that were internally like i had one called the amateurs which was about how to read source code and taking people through source code and stuff like that um, and various routing protocols and stuff like that so that's another interesting story is how that all came to be i um, mean of course that was all before <laughs> before iso 9000 came along and chucked all that down the drain <laughs> ISO 9000, in order to sell to a number of customers, then we need to have ISO 9000 certification. And, for, and, and I believe, I don't know if it's still, I mean, I think it's still a thing, but it was a big deal at the time. I said, what's ISO 9000? So, well, you have to write down your procedures. Okay, we do that and follow them. Oh, <laughs> you know, and they audit you to see if you followed your written down procedures. So we had to. At first we go, this is going to be easy. Of course we write it down. They go, no, but then we expect you to follow it. What? Why would you follow it? And by the way, I had the honor for um, normally as an executive, every so often they would handpick one that was your turn in the barrel where you'd be interviewed by five or six auditors at the same time. I was so good at doing that. I got picked multiple times to be the Cisco representative with the ISO auditors because I used to always joke if there's five of them and one of me, they need five more to balance out the playing field. So the the, uh, the magic words, the magic words, Rod, uh, the magic words, uh, Russ, if you remember, were for reference only. So if you so if if you wrote if you wrote documents that you wanted to fly under the. Uh, auditors it'd be for reference only and there were a lot of for reference only you got to the point where we, we had iso 9000 mugs that said for reference only on them that we passed around so it was um but it did it did serve a purpose because up until you get that certification you run audits companies would run audits and you got to stop what you're doing 
because they would send people in to do an audit. And so once you get that, that certification, then all of a sudden the need for a third party to come in and audit you literally goes away because that is accepted globally by telcos, by healthcare, by et cetera. We joke about it, but it wasn't all bad. I mean, it, 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 got, it got us to a place where, you know, get, where we sort of, it, it, it helped us clean our own house a bit because, you know, when, when you hyper empower people, customers end up with an uneven experience if you're not careful. And Phil, I always remember we got uh, 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 best practice from them because they were they 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 asked me to go. Well, do you have a uh, follow up process when you we talked about critical accounts? I go, sure, we do. We even have a lessons learned, and we have a team that actually examines the lessons learned to figure out which ones of them need to be followed up and closed. And they did an audit trail because as you talk to them, they have the ability to audit what you say and create a new trail. Well, at the end, when they wrote up that report, uh, this is way back when. They wrote that up as a best practice for Cisco. Now, I remember after that report being written, I would get calls from major tech companies saying, hey, can you want to spend an hour talking to us about what you did with this best practice around the follow-up, around lessons learned and critical situations and blah, 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 blah. So uh, there was some goodness to it because sometimes you did not realize some of the things you were doing, nobody else was doing them. Yeah, and then we were we were inventing it as we went along. I remember one of the things we built. It, it, we built probably one of the earliest before there was wikis. Uh, we had built a thing called Open Forum. I don't know if you remember this, but very early days of the web, uh, somebody hacked together a bunch of Perl scripts where a customer would. Uh, type in their issue rather than going to the ticketing system. They would go to this is before forums. You know, this is a you know, Usenet was all we had back then. Comp.dcom.sys.cisco or uh, Cisco at Spot, the mailing list if you remember those. But there were mailing lists in Usenet. But open forum was it was a CGI where customers would type in their question and issue, and it would go up, and and we would and then people would. Uh, if it sat there for more than 48 hours, it automatically opened the case. But what we would do is the tackings would periodically look at these things where it's, it's important. It's not so important that they want a case, but important enough that they threw it up there. And we would, we would occasionally bat stuff out, think, oh, look here, look here, do that. And then that became a knowledge base. So we, we actually created a, so we, we had, we built, we, you know, I think we probably could have just spun off another company to do that. I and mean, it was like, you know, the, Service now before service now, if you will, right? It was a we, we were we, we were inventing stuff because we needed it and it didn't exist. So, so so with with shipping the spare parts to the customers, you could have also invented eBay, but you didn't. Well, we were you know it's funny, Allison. You make a good point, and we were lucky because just as you began to have abuse, we had built a team of people, and we ended up working closely with some big cases that were affecting not just Cisco, but high tech in general of rings. And we put together a team of about a dozen people and the team would quarterly review their findings with legal, with myself. And for those 12 people, we got really good yield because the reality is that as people try to create their own um, third party site to sell parts, uh, we had several relatively big busts ranging from kids that were in school living with their parents to organize rings that were targeting multiple high-tech companies. Yeah, I remember a couple of those cases as well. So that was, uh, but but yeah, I mean, it's sort of, uh, you know, they, 
the, the there are still pirates out there on the internet, right? So so you, you were creating, we were creating the opportunities for those guys uh, even then, right? Well, so. because remember, we gave our people a lot of leeway, the ability to ship of whatever parts they needed. And the beauty, the reason why SmartNet was such a successful offer, and I should explain what that was, SmartNet was the Cisco technical service offering that included um, in software updates and upgrades. It included access to the, tech, to the web for content, parts, and phone calls. But you got to remember, the phone calls and the parts were unlimited, which made it an incredible value proposition. That's why it was so sticky, despite the fact that at the end of the day, we're selling a lot of hardware. Yes, software-enabled. But that was an incredible offer because, remember, a lot of people use SmartNet to gain their network education by calling in going, can you send me a white paper on, um, on uh, routing algorithms or can you explain how this feature works, things like that? Really? So, so I, I mean, I knew about the SmartNet stuff being used as a sort of, um, let's say, uh, a, an extra padding you know, like a baker's dozen model, right? Where they'd, they'd, they'd get the extra pieces of hardware here and there, right? And, you know, nobody, you did guys didn't look too hard as long as it wasn't being vastly abused. But people were using it as a sort of, you know, early YouTube thing. I mean, you like, they call it for communication. The amount of education questions that we were getting, I forget the number, but it was startling. You know, you might think that the number of questions you get vis-a-vis -vis education might be five or 10%. I remember it was much greater than that. I hesitate to name a number, but I remember early on, we're like, holy smokes, we are literally training people. And of course that led to uh, the certifications of CCIE and other things, which is a whole nother topic. But the amount of calls that we were doing uh, based upon education was unbelievable. The CCIE program sprung out of the Cisco TAC. Uh, the Cisco TAC actually was the, it was originally that, uh, and, and part of the deal was we were educating folks so much. We thought, well, what do we want the level of education to be? So we want the level of education to be that they're smart enough that they don't call us. So the idea is you had to be, basically the CCIE program started off, they, they originally called it Top Gun, but uh, I, there, were, there, were, there were certain cinema companies that didn't like that idea very much. And then it was Cisco Certified Network Engineer, and Joe learned that you know you can't call something an engineer without causing legal problems in some countries. Joe tells the story of leaning out of his office and saying, somebody tell me a word like engineer that has an E in it. And somebody said, expert, sold. So, and then it became... That's right, because what happened, we had ordered all the swag, and then legal called me and said, you can't call it engineer. That's a professional designation in some states and in some countries. And I'm like, oh, shoot. I said, shoot, I know we're on a podcast. And so we fortunately changed the word to expert to save all the swag. But there's a difference between you find you're trying to educate the customer versus the customer rings up and says, please educate me to start with, right? So Alistair, I, I would actually say that most supporting organizations even today, a good chunk of their cases are education. Like, I, I, that can't have changed. That's been my experience with with where I am now. So yeah, but I think I think the thing is networking was so new back then. There was really hardly anything you could read. Douglas Comer's book, and that was about the only material you could read for an extended period of time. Training classes at Cisco were backed up months at a time. I remember I started a week early 
because there was a cancellation and they called me and they go, you got to start tomorrow. And I go, what? They go get a cancellation. If you don't come tomorrow into training, the next class you're booked on is four months out, even though you're going to start a week from Monday. And we did that all the time because those seats were like the most valuable things in the world. They gave you a massive binder and it was a very intense training. It was good training. It was weeks work taught by some really sharp people. So here, here, here's another, here's another story. Speaking of training, training and the TAC were located in the same building. And so, this was back in ye olde days before video training, before YouTube. Customers would literally fly in to get training. And every Wednesday night, there was a customer reception. And uh, this customer reception was originally a wine and cheese reception. But they discovered that engineers tended to go after the cookies and the beer more than the wine and cheese. So it became the beer and cookies reception. And, and how do you get a bunch of engineers to talk to customers? Free beer and cookies. And now... Now, literally, the engineers and uh, engineers, the development engineers and the uh, customer support engineers would go and meet with the customers and drink beer and talk shop. And I, I think, you know, more than one new feature came out of those discussions. You know, more than one new deal was created. You know, more than one new way of thinking about networking. It's really the purest interaction of customer and engineer. Uh, and it was just fantastic. And that, that's the thing. That's it. Staying close to the customer uh, was that that was the thing that made it magic and you know, add, 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 add carbohydrates and alcohol doesn't get any better. By the way, uh, Phil, I want to say there was a we had an engineer that held a very unique record. The idea is that if you went over there to eat food, like because they had breakfast, they had lunch. That also meant you had to be available to answer some questions. I had one of my tech engineers get bagged the same day twice trying to score some free food at breakfast and at lunch. And so I had to sit down and I go, dude, I don't care that you got caught. I don't care you got caught twice. You got caught twice the same day. What the hell are you thinking? But, but the, the other thing is we, we did, uh, we, we also had, we were good for, speaking of him versus her, we did have good early diversity in the support organization because the, 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 uh, the, person who founded customer advocacy, which is what the group was called back then, Sandy Lerner, the co-founder of the company, that, that you know, that the, the, it wasn't customer support. We're not supporting because we're advocating for the customer. And, and we took that very seriously. That, that was the spirit that uh, Sandy laid down in the beginning is that the customer is everything to us and, and we're here to make their life better. No, it's a good point. I remember asking about the name and I was told, well, we knew that engineering was going to be a strong leg because the company started off with, you know, obviously in engineering and they could see that sales was coming on big. And they said to balance the stool, to balance the third leg, we needed a strong services organization. Therefore the word customer advocacy. Yep. It was, it was CA for many years. I remember, you know, when I started, it was CA. It was a long run for uh, 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 CA and that, uh, well, you got to remember, I mean, someone may need to fact check me, but I think Cisco went from zero to like 15 billion in, in a, you know, very short period of time. I mean, I mean, it was over a decade, but there was a number of years it doubled. It was, uh, it was actually Wim Elfrink who changed it from customer advocacy to uh, Cisco services. And part of the reason was that an advocate in Europe is a lawyer. 
right? So when they say customer advocacy, they think, well, what, what's law got to do with anything? So, so there, were, there was sort of a, in, some international confusion. And there was a lot of, uh, there was a lot of you know, wailing and gnashing of teeth at the, the change of the name, but it, it, it made sense because it, it, we had, a, it had to be more international. I think, yeah, exactly. By the way, Russ, the other comment I want to make is when we talk about we had our people's box, I want to give an example or two of how we did that. You know, we had a situation where we had two engineers that were stuck in a country that was having a coup. So they're overthrowing the government and we can't find the engineers. And this is before there was cell phones. So keep in mind, folks, there's no cell phones. So we f- locate them at the bank. And the bank goes, you know, the problem is solved. They came here. They were amazing. Um, I called in one of my, my critical account lead, uh, Mike Quinn, who's now running a security company. I go, Mike, we got two engineers at the bank. They're telling me the airport is still open. I need you to get the engineers from the bank to the airport. He goes, do you care what I do? And I go, no, I don't care what you do. All I care is that they're on the plane and they're getting home. Okay. He walks away, I think. Man, that was a simple conversation. Well, about three or four hours later, he comes in and he goes, yeah, here's their flight numbers. I've called the families. They're, uh, they're boarding the flights now. They're going to be in the air in a few minutes. And I'm like, uh, okay, uh, how much? Then he pops out an expense report, and the expense report was like 30000 Now, you got to remember, when I say 30000 I'm talking $30,000 back in the late 90s. So you could kind of do the uh, math about what that is today. Literally, he called the hospital and used his credit card to order up an ambulance to take these two people to the airport. Yeah, I remember that story. And, and, and that was the right thing to do, right? It was definitely the right thing to do. But he did not blink. And I said, you knew you were going to do that the second I told you the problem. And he goes, yep. I'm like, because he walked out. Because normally when you give somebody an assignment, they go, well, I got a clarifying question, or is there any limit on what I could spend? Or, 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 or. I remember he, I, I knew he knew what I, what I said. I knew he understood me. He turned around and walked out. I'm like, okay, okay. I mean, and I knew Mike. We had a good relationship. And though, so that was uh, the other story I want to tell you is we had an engineer fly from London to Sydney, come down with a very serious uh, blood clot, and I called him, and the first five questions I asked him, he goes, Joe, my manager already asked me that. It was unbelievable. I said, can we fly your family to Sydney? No, my manager already asked me. I go, are, um, you know, do you, are you, um, you know, when you fly back home, do you need to fly in a private jet? No, my manager already asked me that. Um, do you need any special medical care? No, my manager already asked me that. After the fifth question, I go, I apologize for wasting your time. Uh, you got an excellent manager. Just uh, let me know who your manager is so I congratulate them. And by the way, you got to realize that the manager was, was three or four levels lower than me. So I'm calling up this individual, and the five questions I had, the manager had already asked them. TAC was, was I, I must say, TAC was extremely rough in being in TAC, particularly in the earlier days. It was very, very stressful, but we had a lot of fun. We had a lot of laughs. We had a lot of stories. I never forget, Phil's going to remember this. I remember we bought Stratacom. And my, the beauty about being in technical services at Cisco is that a lot of times we got to break in the new HR people. I don't know why, but we got the new HR people. So there we are. We're having a staff meeting, and they go, you know, Joe, we got a new HR person for you. And it's from the Stratacom. And our lovely woman, uh, Pilar, she's still a friend. 
and that um, she comes on. And, and of course, our staff meeting would be rather crazy, a lot of swearing, a lot of cursing. So I go, gee, I got to get this under control. I don't know this HR director from Adam. I said, hey, folks, uh, didn't we agree that from now on, that if we start swearing and cursing, we're going to throw, uh, you know, a couple of bucks in the pool for charity? So I think, okay, I'm going to control the the, the, the the cursing, right? I said this, Phil here gets up, he throws $100 on the table because he proceeds to say what he's going to say. And then Mike gets up and throws his friggin' credit card on the table. So Russ, I mean, how's that for a staff meeting? I am, I mean, I remember this like it's yesterday. I am turning red and getting embarrassed. You know, I, I go, okay, I got to control my team. And granted, we let it fly back then because everybody was working 24 by 7. Nobody was taking any breaks and people needed to vent, but everyone had each other's backs. There was some amazing work. And in some ways, every year we did that, we gained probably five years of experience. You know, it's interesting. I work with a number of startups, uh, four or five of them. I can't, can't, can't even keep count, plus my day job. And it's interesting because there are things I see now that I go, oh, yeah, yeah, hold on. Let me tell you about this because I've seen it before. <laughs> P team, we had uh, a large crossword puzzle on the wall. And it wasn't there for the crossword puzzle. It was there for the world's largest book of clues. <laughs> because when you took a case and you didn't have a clue, you were required to go look at the world's largest book of clues to see if you could get your clue back. So we had all sorts of weird things like that that went on intact. We were amazing. And I'll even give you an example personally. When I got promoted to vice president in 1997, they literally send an email to development because they couldn't send it to service because everybody knew me. So they send an email to Cisco development and they go, does anyone know Joe? So of course a lot of people knew me, but they go, okay, hold on. Does anyone know Joe that lives in his neighborhood? So the Novell developer, John Wright, he goes, oh yeah, I know where Joe lives. And they go, great. Can you go pick up his wife? So they send John to go pick up my wife. My wife thinks something happened to me. Why is, why are they sending someone to pick me up? Right? She comes in, there's an auditorium full of people, and there is Doug Allred saying, oh, great, this is Joe's wife, we can get started now, announcing my promotion to vice president. I mean, you want to talk about having a memory, right? They, they literally send someone to my house to get my wife. And by the way, a little story about John Wright. He was originally in support and then, um, and then became the Novell uh, developer. Do I have that right, Phil? <laughs> Now, there, there, actually, one of, my, one of my favorite stories around that is John as a Novell developer. Um, Joe had received an escalation call about Novell, uh, and he uh, received this call on his phone, a customer yelling about a Novell thing, and he was in a car with John going to a hockey game, and he just handed the phone to John. Here, I got the guy for you, and handed him the phone. We're going to a Sharks game. The New York field team goes, the guy's going crazy. We, there's only one person that can help us, John Wright. I go, hold on. So we put him on, solves the issue. The account team goes, how did you find them so fast? And I go, you know, I got to protect the privacy of people. So I can't say. When you first started TAC, was there a front-end uh, TRT team or a front-end team that was taking cases and sorting them to the backline TRTs? That was, that was, that was Karen and uh, we had we had two people, uh, Karen and I can't remember the other person, and uh, and, and they th and basically they took the calls. There were two people went to four. Actually, uh, one of the and one of the four back in the '90s actually ended up marrying the critical account manager. But that's a whole different story. Th that's a true story. 
Julie. All, all in the family. But yeah, they had, uh, there was the CRC, the Customer Response Center, and there were two people originally grew, that grew to four, and their job was to you know, write the ticket and dispatch it, and sometimes get out of their chair and grab somebody and say, you need to deal with this. Uh, so they were physically in the same in the same. Literally, they would they would come they would get out of their chair and tackle somebody. Yeah, but the, and that was back when we were all in San Jose. At some point, we opened the RTP office, and the, the being able to physically get up and do it wasn't it wasn't possible anymore. I, I don't know. Did, was there a, was there a CRC in the RTP office? What we, what we haven't said what we haven't said in the history is we started off in California, and then we added RTP at Research Triangle Park, North Carolina, as the second office. Hardwood Hotel. Yeah, Hardwood. Actually, I think he started at Lake, Lakeside Lounge and then went to Hardwood Hotel. Yeah. My, my trick is that in RTP, the first three extensions were 6821, 6822, 6823. Why do I know them? Because our first three hires was Joe Novak, Greg Akers, and a guy by the name of John. I would try to call one of them to, to, to transfer a case. <laughs> so I knew those three extensions like 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 back of my 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 hand. And although the history it's lost to history, one of the main reasons we set up in Research Triangle Park, North Carolina, was that's where IBM was situated, and we were just getting into the business of networking to IBM mainframes with uh, SDLC networking and APPN. If you can remember that thing, that where where it looks like Dennis. What was his last name? Dennis. Dennis Wind. <laughs> was it Dennis Wynn? Who can forget Dennis Wynn? Come That's on. it. Yeah. <laughs> but, uh, but uh, yeah, we had, uh, but, but the thing is that that was, IBM was an incredibly big deal at the time. And, uh, and, and IBM really just didn't know what hit them. We, we came in and they said, you know, you, 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 you're not a mainframe. You're, you know, you're nothing like our front end processors. All of our stuff is, you know, you know, built in and integrated super tightly with the mainframe and the flow. And you guys are never going to make a dent in it. And then they woke up one day and found their entire networking franchise is gone. So what happens? They stopped listening to customers. I remember hiring a lot of good IBM developers that wanted to crack at Cisco and they were happy to take a job in uh, Cisco support and RTP. And they were pretty amazing people. And, and they went on to do things like storage networking and things like that. Storage adds a lot like DASD, right? So it's all the same, right? So yeah, and the, the, the IBM people went on to grow into you know a lot of different. As IBM became less relevant, they they spread out and you know got all new technologies. There's one this this one CRC story I remember was that I was on the RP team, so I took IP and stuff like that, and routing protocol stuff mostly, and we kept getting cases for Novell Netware. We could figure out why that should be going to the desktop team. So we walked so, so walked over to the CRC and said, so why are you handing us Novell Network cases? And they said, well, because they they come in as IPX. And that's... <laughs> Is that V4 or V6? Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Like, that's just IP, right? <laughs> well, it's so funny because one of the things that's lost to time is that uh, IPX, one of the great things about IPX is just plugged in and it got going. And one of the things about IPv6, one of the reasons we got this crazy big address was that IPX used the MAC address as part of the address and slapped on a network at the end, at the, the left end of it. So IPv6, the, the whole, S, the whole um, Slack was all about, hey, let's make it self-configuring before there was DHCP. And, and so the, the, the self-configuring address nature of it was very important. And 
Uh, and it, these days, people look and say, why did they design it that way? It's like, well, back back in the day, it looked like a good idea. And, you know, in retrospect, it's like, mm, not so much. <laughs> so I always remember my first Apple Talk case. I remember getting some t- tutor- tutoring and coaching from um, uh, 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 Pat Jones and Hart Brenda. And I go back to the customer, and I'm talking about Martians and Zones, and the customer like gets upset because he thinks I'm messing with them. That's the other thing is network engineers never met a pun that they didn't like. We we love to codename everything and and make things funny and ha ha. And the customer like, why did you name it this way? It's like because we were working really hard and we were tired when we came up with the name. <laughs> you know, wouldn't this be funny? You, you know what, Phil? You bring up a good point because the story about SmartNet is I remember getting a, a phone call about SmartNet saying hey, you guys violated a couple of dozen copyright laws uh, with SmartNet. And I'm like, okay. And they go, well, and they go, well, no one enforced it, so you're okay. And and I think SmartNet is is like, SmartNet, remember what what, uh, SmartNet, SmartNet was actually an acronym. It was Software Maintenance Advanced Replacement and Telephone Support. S-M-A-R-T. The smart, I think, I think we only very recently, I don't know, if, I think the SmartNet brand is still around. It, it lasted for a very, very long time. I, I, I no, it's still around. And look, when I, when I left, it was still about a huge piece of the franchise. Uh, uh, you know, when I left in 2018, who knows uh, right now? I mean, 2018 seems like 200 years ago, especially after this year. All I know is that this year, things got so crazy. I was down to one coffee pod. So I drive up to Stanford where there's an outdoor shopping center. I go to Nepresso. So I go, oh, the store is empty. So I, I go up and the girl goes, no, no, you take a, a, let me get your name and number. And I can see there's a roster and my name is like 20 names down. And I'm thinking, okay, this is not good. <laughs> I've been there, done that. <laughs> Mansion beyond Raleigh, what happened there? I know there was attack in Brussels and then it was in Melbourne, correct? Those were the four? Yeah, so in, uh, in, in Brussels and in Sydney, they were both picked by sales um, because originally back then, the support centers in Europe and in Asia were run by sales. Now, that did not last long because obviously they were too busy making their quotas and, and booking commissions. But Brussels and Sydney were actually picked by the respective leaders that ran each theater. Uh, both sites, I will say, had amazing people, uh, obviously uh, more expensive than maybe you would want. But what happened in Brussels especially is at one point we had a couple of hundred people that were highly certified, highly skilled, and we said, you know what, we're staying here. Sure, well, we expanded in Krakow, Poland, for example, which was a good place for talent, right? Sydney, we expanded in other locations in, uh, in APAC for different reasons, right? But again, really, really good talent. But those two sites were picked by the respective sales leaders of, the, uh, of both uh, geographies. And wasn't the idea, when, the, when those sites came about, was part of the idea to be able to cover, have 24-hour coverage without placing it in odd hours and other tax? Because I know that's the way it came out. Originally, it was to cover business hours during the day for the region. And there was kind of a loose federation of service and sales doing the 24 by 7. But shortly after I got there, um, uh, it was, uh, you know, they said, okay, we're not going to live with this. And then we started doing the, you know, the 24 by 7, the, um, you know, the follow the sun, the, you know, priority, you know, priority one, priority two, three, four, setting of priorities, uh, things of that nature. But yeah, 
But originally, the, the original three sites were San Jose, then Brussels, then Sydney. Uh, then Raleigh came on uh, board. Eventually, by the time I left, there was multiple sites because, you, again, you had a site in Richardson due to the acquisitions and the expertise around voice. Uh, for a while, you had it in the Massachusetts area because of the acquisitions. Eventually, uh, that was closed. You expanded in Krakow. I think now they're in Lisbon, uh, in, uh, in uh, Portugal. Uh, in uh, Japan, you had it in Tokyo for language. In China, you originally had it in Beijing for language, but eventually you did some outtasking in Dalian in, uh, in um, uh, I think it's in Northeast uh, China. So, you know, uh, over time it expanded to about 12, uh, 12 sites. The bottom line is the spirit of the spirit of the customer focus and being, you know, completely uh, uh, seriously dedicated to customer success and seriously dedicated to training and expertise. That, that's what's really made the difference for the TAC all these years is having that the deep expertise, the engineering spirit and the indomitable customer focus uh, and the dedication doing the right thing, you know, even when it's, you know, requires you educating the customer on the phone or taking calls at inconvenient times or uh, locating hardware that's hard to find. It, it, that level of customer dedication is what always made the, made the tax special from the beginning. Uh, and, and the spirit lives on today. Even when I was working with you know, some of the newest groups in like Krakow and uh, Bangalore, uh, they, they, a lot of the new people came in, felt that spirit, and uh, and it lived on. It, it's really just a fantastic thing to see. So, Joe, what are you doing now? Are you? Yeah, I, I am. I am uh, chief customer officer at Pure Storage, which is high speed storage built for machine learning, AI, SaaS applications. I've been there about going on two years, and I'm working actively involved with uh, five startups. Uh, so I don't make my wife crazy. And Phil. Can people get in touch with you any place? What are you working on? Uh, yeah, you, uh, how about this? You can you can get me at rule11 at remaker.com. So, uh, or frankly, almost anything at remaker.com will reach me, R-E-M-A-K-E-R.com. Um, currently between gigs, uh, looking for something interesting, cloud, networking, security, uh, and uh, happy to talk to anybody that's got a cool thing to do. So, 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 so somebody hire Phil. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Somebody, he's a valuable asset to any organization. And by the way, my email is joe at joepinto.com, courtesy of Phil. That's my email address. And Alistair, uh, let's see. I, you don't have a blog, but I think people can find most of your stuff over on um, LinkedIn. on LinkedIn, LinkedIn or the FR routing stuff, yeah, right? Yeah, exactly. Or FRR. Yeah, find me over uh, FRR on the routing. Or NetDef, yeah. And Donald, Twitter. Me, not you, Sharp. I'm Russ Weiss. You can find me at rule11.tech. Thanks for joining us for this episode of The History of Networking, and we'll catch you next time. Subscribe to The History of Networking on your favorite podcast service or follow along at rule11.tech.